Uh, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, I'm Kate Cruikshank. I am co-chair of the Education uh, Subcommittee of the Bankruptcy Section of the BBA, and I am also the incoming co-chair of the Bankruptcy Section starting in September of next year. I'm very happy to welcome you to our uh, webinar today. It's going to be a very great pro program, and I'm um, excited to have you all here with us today. Um, our panel consists of Katie Krakawa, who is general corporate attorney, uh, general corporate attorney with the firm of M Murray Plum and Murray in Portland, Maine. She counsels clients through all stages of the business life, cy life cycle, um, from their entity form formation to wind down and sale. Her practice includes debtor representation in complex commercial bankruptcies most recently in the healthcare space, where she is currently representing three acute uh, rural hospitals, uh, excuse me, acute care rural hospitals. All three of the hospitals have sued the Small Business Administration because they were denied access to the Paycheck Protection Program due to their status as debtors. Uh, and two of the cases resulted in trials that were conducted by Zoom in front of Judge Michael Fagoni in the District of Maine in the past month. She anticipates that the cases will continue to provide her with the opportunities to experience more remote litigation and learn lots of helpful lessons in all, all the courts in the First and Second Circuit over the next few weeks. So it sounds like you have a busy few weeks coming up, Katie. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I'm also happy to welcome here uh, my partner, Dan Line, who is a shareholder at Murphy & King, where I am in Boston also. Dan co-leads Murphy and King's litigation department, and he focuses his practice on business litigation and general litigation, including uh, commercial business disputes involving mergers and acquisitions, uh, breaches of financial representations and warranties, professional malpractice, and general contract litigation. He also handles intellectual, real pro uh, intellectual property disputes and of particular interest today is Mr. Lyons, uh, Dan's representation of clients in remote mediation, which we're very interested to hear about. He, that, the, the mediation was conducted by Zoom as well. Um, also here with us today is Andrea MacGyver-Sullivan, who is an associate at Murphy & King. Um, her practice concentrates on complex business litigation with uh, focus on resolving employment, securities, contract and fiduciary duty disputes. She has tried and arbitrated cases in Massachusetts, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Utah. So she's been pretty much all over. And as the pandemic has caused court shutdowns um, to continue on, Andrea has taken and defended many, many, many remote depositions. I would say that was fair, right, Andrea? That's right. Um, and then we also have here today our surprise guest, um, which we, we're, who is a last minute addition to the panel because we found out that Gary Weiner has also conducted a remote trial in front of Judge James Tangredi in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Connecticut. So we, we asked him to join us here today to give us his insights. Gary is the principal of the Weiner Law Firm in Springfield, Massachusetts and he focuses his practice on bankruptcy law, commercial collections, commercial litigation, and loan workouts. He's also one of the four Chapter 7 panel trustees in the Western District of Massachusetts. Um, and as I said, Gary re recently tried a remote trial in front of Judge Tancredi on a different format, which he'll tell us about. And uh, just a little bit about today's panel. Um, I know we're the bankruptcy section, but this is not a bankruptcy specific panel. It focuses on the ins and outs of remote litigation and uh, that could happen in state court or any federal court. Um, as you know, uh, states and federal courts are faced with an ever increasing backlog of evidentiary hearings and trials and remote lit litigation is probably likely for all of us in the not too distant future. Judge Robert Drain out of the bankruptcy court in the Southern District of New York has recently scheduled a remote trial on the confirmation of a plan in the case of Windstream Holdings um, on the authority that he says is granted to him under Rule 34 of the Civil Rules of Civil 
federal rules of civil procedure. <laughs> Did you say 32, Dan? 40, 43. 43, thank you. I'm a little dyslexic. So. That's okay. Uh, ba bankruptcy courts in Massachusetts have been offering trials to people. So far, they have not required anyone to have a remote trial. I know at least one of the judges is considering it. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen. But not, as far as I know, there have been no bankruptcy judges that have ordered it. But given their backlog, that may also happen. And also, I'll just note that the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts just entered an order, I believe it was yesterday, Dan pointed out uh, to me, right, that granted trial courts, uh, trial judges discretion to conduct virtual trials. Jury waiver. Our panelists will also discuss, not only is it really likely to be in our future, uh, the cost savings of litigation remotely may cause aspects of it to become a permanent part of litigation. So um, with that, with these comments, I now want to turn the panel over to Katie Krakawa. Um, please welcome Katie. Thanks, Kate. And I'm sure you all heard my dog bark. So <clears throat> lesson number one from doing remote litigation. <laughs> The judge will hear your dog bark. Um, you just have to kind of roll with it. So we're going to talk on, uh, hit on a lot of topics today. Um, and hopefully we're going to give you some practical tips about using remote litigation to your advantage that encourages you to try it out and to participate in it now when you can be a volunteer instead of a forced participant and have a lot more say in how courts and other parties are navigating this space and figuring it out, um, which gives you the added bonus of becoming an expert in your, in your firm and among your peers and a leader in this area, um, which, you know, we're all gonna be working from home for a while or minimally from the office. Courts are going to be at best on a reduced capacity for quite a while. Um, and we could all be back home again. And there's only so long that we can wait um, on a lot of these matters and to deliver justice to parties and to our clients. And so we're going to have to figure this out. And so if you haven't taken the opportunity to um, try some of these tools via deposition or arbitration or with a court, um, you should really consider trying that now. And hopefully we give you some ideas about how to go about doing that. The first thing we're going to talk about today is pros and cons of some of the popular platforms out there and when you might use one over the other. Um, we're going to talk about specifically challenges with document presentation in across all the aspects of remote litigation, which we have found to be the most difficult um, or the most challenging piece of remote litigation. Um, another challenging piece of remote litigation is the various sophistication of the parties. We're going to talk about that. Um, not just you, but your clients and the courts and um, court reporters and all of these various people who before could just show up and do their jobs and now have this added layer of having to find the internet and a screen and a camera and a microphone um, and then toggle and use them and look at documents and, and what that means and what some tips are for that. And finally, we're going to touch on the new, some new legal frameworks um, that have come out at the state and federal level that um, look to us to be indications, like Kate just talked about, um, that the courts are going to force this issue um, soon, and um, and what those rules are and how to prepare for that. So, Dan. Dan is going to talk about um, some of the platforms. Dan, what's your experience with the platforms um, in your in mediation and, and with the courts? And how? What are the pros and cons for you? Oh, um, for mediation, I, I actually think mediation is a perfect vehicle for remote uh, video conferencing. Um, unlike trials, the metaphor of a a virtual room versus a regular room fits perfectly into this. So I had a very complex IP mediation, which was run by a IP litigator out of Florida. I and my clients were in three different locations in Massachusetts. 
the defendants were in Norway, Denver, and Little Rock, Arkansas, and Florida. And it came across seamlessly. I mean, it was it was quite remarkable. I was uh, um, I was in a virtual breakout room with my clients remotely in the same breakout room. All of the defendants were in their own joint breakout room, and they could have separate breakout rooms. The mediator controlled access to all of the breakout rooms, and we were online using Zoom for 12 hours, pretty much. Um, and I don't think there was a single glitch. It's very organic, the way it unfolds in mediation. Um, you know, a mediator pops his head into your room if you're in a conference room and says, let's chat. And he does exactly the same thing in a virtual conference room. So, so I, I feel like I'm untethered to a choice of mediator at this point in time. I don't have to go to the mediator. The mediator doesn't have to come to me. So I actually find it a very liberating experience in terms of the ability to conduct a very high level mediation using a mediator anywhere in the country. And that's a huge plus for me. It's a huge plus for my clients. Um, and you also, I mean, just the cost associated with bringing people together is can be really significant at times. So, so for me, I think the big takeaway so far is I think mediations are flawless. I think they work perfectly. I'm not as happy with uh, virtual hearings, with video hearings. I think it's hard. And I think it's going to take practice to engage a judge virtually as opposed to in front of a judge where you have more of an ability to pick up on visual cues. So, so I, I'm, I'm very much a proponent for mediation. I am less of a proponent, but I'm resigned to the fact that we are going to continuously have virtual hearings. Um, and in fact, my partner just got a notice of a virtual oral argument in the First Circuit for a criminal case, a large criminal case. Um, one of my other partners was just in a virtual Federal Circuit Court of Appeals argument yesterday. So I, I think these are, it, it's a given. Um, and the big challenge for the, for the bar is to figure out how to do all of this um, remotely in a way that doesn't, A, rob it of its gravitas, because trials are supposed to have a certain amount of gravitas, and, and at the same time, engage the viewer. And that can be hard. So we'll see what happens. What are some of the platforms that you've used, Dan? Um, well, I mean, like everyone else, I've used um, I've used Zoom regularly. Um, I have a hearing tomorrow in the Supreme Court in New York, um, and that court has a exclusive contract for Skype, so I have to use Skype. Um, and then I've used uh, Teams. Uh, I haven't used Jabber, although I know Gary has tried his case in Jabber. Most of these have a similar, you know, sort of technological footprint. Um, I don't think anybody is happy with just straight screen sharing um, in these circumstances, but there, the, there, <clears throat> there is a, um, there's a growing sense that we need a better FTP alternative than we currently have. I mean, there are there are offerings out there, whether it's through, you know, stenographers like O'Brien and Levine, they have a system. Veritext has a system that they, I think they call SharePoint or something. Um, and all of them are, they work. They have the benefit of being able to publish things. 
Uh, but they are still pretty kludgy in terms of the interface and how often you have to refresh uh, to make sure that everything gets pushed out correctly. Um, and there are pretty significant limitations in terms of how you can um, how you can use the documentation that's in the system. We, for example, most of these systems you can't download it locally. Your annotations are, I would say, clumsy. Um, and many of them don't have highlighting and pointing features that you can use to direct witness. So you have to do things orally, which is sometimes less um, visually compelling. I know it's not this visually compelling, but it's less compelling for the uh, for the judge to follow. So I, I think I think all of the Zoom and video platforms are relatively similar. I think there is going to be an influx of new FTP overware to try and solve some of these problems, but it's uh, it is very much a work in progress. Right. And, and maybe on those lines, I'll talk about some of the different um, exhibit products that there are out there um, in doing um, you know, about 10 depositions, I've come across a few different options. Um, and I can talk about some of the pros and cons of each of those. Um, so just, just focusing on exhibits, which I think is the most daunting uh, topic for everyone when we're thinking about remote litigation, whether it's trial, deposition, or mediation, um, how are we gonna handle the exhibits? And um, there are a lot of options, so it doesn't have to be daunting. The first is that you can obviously exchange the exhibits in advance. Um, this can be done by email, in PDFs, um, and it can be done by sending hard copies. Obviously, for any litigator, this is not ideal. It um, eliminates that element of surprise that you have during a deposition. Um, but I have seen people who have sent hard copies in advance and sealed them so that the seal has to be broken on the camera, um, and therefore the exhibits are being seen for the first time um, during the deposition or whatever proceeding it might be. In addition, as Dan mentioned, Zoom is, is basically the platform that I think most people are using right now. Um, so most people are probably familiar with um, the screen share. Sorry about that, another interruption. You should have your phone off. Um, another rule, sorry about that, everyone. Back to um, Zoom. Uh, so there are a couple of exhibit options on Zoom. The first is screen share, and the second is through the chat feature. Uh, each of these have a couple pros and cons. With the screen share, only one person can control the document at a time. So this means if I'm the attorney taking the deposition and I share the exhibit, um, at that point, I control the document. So if the witness needs to scroll down, I'm scrolling for them. There is an option where you can uh, give control of that document to the witness, but again, only one person at a time controls the document, um, and you have to, you know, just keep track of that because um, then when the witness has control, they have to transfer it back to the attorney. Um, and then with the chat feature, you can upload documents through the chat feature, which is great. Uh, everybody would then have the document in front of them. Um, the only con with that that I've seen is that with large documents and you know everybody on a different internet bandwidth, sometimes people get the exhibit right away and then other times you're waiting about five minutes for the exhibit to come through. Um, so there's that element. Yeah, can I ask, how do you mark exhibits in your depositions? So that was actually the next con that I was gonna get to in Zoom. There is no um, marking at the time that you're introducing the exhibits. So the court reporter does that after the fact. One of the pros of the next options that uh, you had alluded to earlier, um, a lot of court reporting services are actually um, coming out with exhibit specific platforms. So in addition to Zoom, some court reporting services have an exhibit platform. And most of these platforms do allow, as soon as a document is published, it's immediately marked. So that's one of the definite pros of those. Um, when you're using one of those, basically what you have to do is have all your exhibits prepared in advance, which I think any of us would do for a deposition anyway. Um, if I'm the attorney taking the deposition, I have all the potential exhibits that I might use available. And then as the deposition proceeds, 
um, and I want to use an exhibit, I quote unquote publish it and everybody in the deposition gets their own copy. So they can scroll through it, they can look at it, it's not gonna affect the copy that's on the screen. And I think this most um, accurately really reflects a real life deposition where everybody gets a copy, they can do whatever they want with it. Many of the programs actually, you can write on them, you can mark them up, and it obviously has that exhibit sticker right away. So there's no confusion, and you have all those documents at your disposal from that minute onward. Um, the only con I would say to some of these exhibit platforms is it is another program to learn. Um, and for most of them, they're internet-based. So you have to toggle between uh, Zoom and then just this internet exhibit platform, um, which you know adds another element. But I do think in document-intensive cases, it's worth it to have that option. Um, and then just one more note is that obviously, I think even with these options available, there are still going to be some attorneys who, you know, they're just not comfortable with the technology. Um, they, you know, it might, might be the first time using it. And there are options for that as well. Um, one is that some court reporters will offer to handle the exhibits. So you should definitely speak to your court reporter about that. That might be something that they're willing to do. Um, you can also hire a technical support person to handle the uh, exhibits, which um, is usually seen in trials, not necessarily a deposition, but it is something that court reporting services are making available. And then obviously another option is um, if your case allows it, maybe have an associate or a paralegal handle the exhibits for you. Um, so those are sort of some of the experience I've had with exhibits um, during depositions and the different platforms. Um, but Katie, I know that you've, you know, done trials with exhibits. So what, what have the courts done with handling exhibits and trials? Yeah, I mean, I found the exhibit piece to be the most challenging. Um, you know, it's bankruptcy court. And so we, in general, you know, I think most adversary proceedings or um, trials operate from a certain level of stipulation already that isn't always the case in other types of proceedings. And so in terms of presentation of evidence in general and in terms of um, testimony, that can really help with that. But the documents are the documents and you need to get them into the record no matter what. And so they're always gonna be um, a problem. And um, I think, you know, part of the, the document issue, the document issue I think at trial is less about the platform and more about the judge. So the judge has to decide what they, what they want and how they will accept the evidence. And, um, for my trials, the judge wanted physical copies and he um, didn't want anybody toggling on screens because he was concerned that people could be looking at other um, materials or reading messages from people. And so uh, we had to provide physical copies to everybody and we had to provide them significantly in advance. Um, and that was really challenging. And, and we had to prepare bind, print them, prepare binders, and um, FedEx them to everybody, including the court, in, in enough time for them to be received by the date that the judge gave, um, which was not the day before the trial. <laughs> it was like four days before the trial. Um, and do all that remotely, right? You know, none of us, there's not like 10 people in the office ready to copy and bind things together. Um, and that was a challenge. Um, you know, we worked as closely as we could with the U.S. Attorney's Office um, to streamline the number of exhibits to see what we could agree to and which exhibits that we each wanted to offer were the same um, so that we could have one version because they had to do the same thing. Um, and uh, it was expensive and, um, you know, added a complexity to preparing for trial when you're worrying about the content that I wish wasn't there. Um, but to me, I thought that was the really the one drawback of having to do trial um, remotely. On okay, the, on how a did you deal with impeachment exhibits? Impeachment exhibits we handled differently. Um, the impeachment exhibits, and I think we only used two, um, you could, so the court ran, let me back up. We use Zoom and um, 
the court ran Zoom. There's Zoom has made a platform just for government. Um, and so the courtroom deputy managed um, everybody signing in. They managed breakout rooms, um, which is a feature in most of these platforms where, you know, you have your main proceeding going on and then whoever is hosting the proceeding can split people off um, like Dan was alluding to in his mediations so that, you know, certain people are in certain little chat rooms seeing each other and speaking. Um, and so the court handled all of that and insisted on also handling any documents that were going to be shared via the screen share, which is how the judge wanted to handle impeachment documents. Um, and so you had to email your impeachment document to the courtroom deputy and we all had to wait for the courtroom deputy, courtroom deputy to get it. And then the courtroom deputy shared it on the screen. And then it, Andrea, it was similar to your issue with Zoom in a deposition. The courtroom, courtroom deputy is scrolling for the attorney who's asking the questions to the witness who's looking at the document. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't ideal. Um, and I, maybe over time as the court um, gets a little more familiar with the tools, the judge might've been okay with the deputy like handing over control of the scrolling feature to the attorney, but not that was not gonna happen in the first trial, um, which is what we were. Um, you know, one of the issues that I thought of arose with that is that now everybody's seeing your impeachment document. And um, that's not always the case, right? You're not entering it in as um, evidence. And so normally it's something you just use and the witness looks at it and maybe the other party looks at it, but the court doesn't. Um, and But doing it this way, they did. So for us, it wasn't, that wasn't a problem, but I could see um, that might be a problem in other contexts that you wouldn't want the court, the fact finder to be seeing your impeachment document necessarily, depending on what the other contents of it are. Um, the other, I'm just going to go back and talk a little bit about breakout rooms and, and loop in on a question that was raised. Um, you know, everybody should feel free to use the Q and a feature on the, on the zoom um, bar at the bottom of your screen, and we'll try and answer these questions as they come up. There was a lot of questions in our trial about security, and I know that that was a major issue for the court in deciding which um, platform to use, and a reason I think that Zoom created a government-specific platform. I think everybody heard the news stories about people logging in for a webinar and um, illicit photographs all of a sudden flashing up, you know, kind of thing. Judges aren't so much interested in that. So especially when they're recording um, the trial as a record, a public record. And um, so security is an issue, right? And you, you need to understand the security of the platform that you're choosing. Um, I know Zoom has um, made some changes and some updates. So you can send out a password for your meeting um, and require a password before people can log in. Um, you can host a meeting and make people wait until you've joined. That's how um, those kinds of things were happening before is people were just blasting out a link that people could join at any time and random people were joining these links and sitting there. Um, and so the host wasn't aware of everybody there. Um, I believe WebEx, which is very similar to Zoom, has more robust security features um, and has been a platform that a lot of law firms have chosen to use for their internal meetings for that reason um, and with their clients. Um, so security is an issue. And one of the questions that we had in advance of our trial was, how do these breakout rooms work? Who's controlling them? Are they recorded? Could they end up part of the record? Um, because you can't walk out of the courtroom and stand in the hallway with your client and give them some sensitive advice about, um, you know, how, how the what the proceeding, how the proceeding is going, and um, some tips if everybody's listening, right? So that put the obligation really on the court to understand how that feature worked, and then on us as attorneys to understand how that feature worked in order to be comfortable with using it. Um, so that gets us into um, the next topic, which is using these platforms and all of these different players trying to use these platforms. 
And how does that work, right? So you can learn as much as possible. You can do webinars for each platform all day. You can read papers about everything. But how do you teach your witness, your client, how to use the platform? How do you, how does the court um, understand how to use these platforms? And how do you, if you understand more about these platforms than the court, how do you help the court um, without taking over from the court? Um, and how do you work with your court reporter um, for your depositions uh, on, on how to use these different um, pieces of technology? You know, the sophistication of the parties, I think, plays a major role in the platform that you might choose. Um, Gary, what has been your experience with um, some difficulties that the different different parties have had in using these different platforms? So I'll, um, I'll talk a little bit about the trial, but before that, um, you know, one of the stories we talked about is that um, uh, I think it really comes to the sophistication of people you're dealing with. So uh, I've got, I'm involved in a case right now where I'm counseled with creditors committee and it involves majority of the people who are involved in the creditors committee are over the age of 75. Um, so that's taken on to a life onto itself in regards to conducting meetings with them via Zoom. And it is everything that you would expect in the beginning. They, they couldn't see the video. They didn't turn the video on. You'd only hear the voice. Um, now I have one member of the committee that she has figured out finally how to get onto the meeting but we only see her ceiling. Um, so we've yet to see her face and given her age, I sometimes wanna make sure she's still there. Um, but it, it's just one of those things that we get back to on the witness aspect of it. If you're gonna have a trial and where the witness is, what the witness is doing becomes so relevant. So the reason I got involved in this is because I, I had a two day jury, a two day, not jury, a bench trial uh, down in Connecticut. It was the first, trial, I think, that, that certainly one that I had. And we all thought, as we're going through it, there were seven lawyers involved. We fully expected that the judge was going to put this off, put this off, put this off. And it was continued from March 1st to March 25th. And then it was then we actually had the trial, two-day trial, April 2nd. Um, the key thing for us was a week before the trial, the court required everybody to agree upon the exhibits or agree on what you disagree so everybody had the exhibits. The exhibits were put into the system. Um, the court used the Jabber system a week before we all had a practice run. So whether you're doing it from your house, whether you're doing it from your office, um, we had one witness who I'll talk a little bit more actually did it on his cell phone, which in one aspect sounds funny, but the thing about the cell phone, it gave the clearest view uh, and that part was good. But I think as we've always learned today, two things that happened. One, you get a dog barking. Uh, and two, you get a phone ringing. Things that you wouldn't ordinarily have to deal with in the courtroom, you have to think about that. And the other thing that I think is out there is what are you wearing? I mean, it sounds funny in a way. What are you wearing? And I'm not talking about if you're wearing shorts, that's fine. But, you know, for the guys, are you wearing a coat and tie throughout the entire trial? How are you going to deal with it? It sounds kind of funny, but you sort of have to deal with that. Um, you know, what's the view that you're looking at? Is it too light? Is it not dark enough? Uh, one of the attorneys that was involved in my case, which is really important, was he went to headphones. And he went to headphones because it allowed him to, A, concentrate on the trial, not hear anything else out there, not hearing the dog barking or anything else, but it also allowed him to hear the judge better. Um, it, it was in that aspect. Of it. So those are things to think about you know, what is your computer system going to allow you to do? If you're at home and you're conducting a trial or a hearing, what is your bandwidth? Um, do you have two teenage kids who are also on as well? These are things that you have to consider because it has an impact. The last thing you want to do is to have your discussion be stopped and you're in pause and the court can't hear you anymore. Big factors. Let me, let me tell a quick story about the, the view. And um, I was in an oral argument in Zoom, and um, one of the other attorneys, you know, now we've all seen each other's homes, right? So, um, and some people's homes are really interesting. And there was an, an attorney, and she was trying to give, like, this very reasoned, serious oral argument. And she was in an entirely burgundy room, 
with burgundy curtains and burgundy blinds and a burgundy cat tree thing and cats were crawling all over it behind her. And that was her background for the oral argument. <laughs> I have no idea how anybody heard what, what she actually said. Um, but that's not, you know, that's a pretty common thing, right? To, to end up in some of these and see a very distracting background and have questions about the background and not about what the person is talking about. It, it's a great point to deal with it. It's, it's sort of now, what is this new normal? How are you dealing with it? Where are you when you're doing the presentation? I mean, I told you one early on, I had an evidentiary hearing probably, you know, early April in front of Judge Katz and I had two dogs that were barking in my house. And at that point, they always told you, don't use your cell phone, use your landline. Well, most, some people don't have a landline anymore, but even if you have a landline, then the question is, how do you mute your landline? So I, I was able to figure it out, but I went down in the basement and the judge knew I was walking down the basement as the dogs were barking. I mean, those are things that you just, you know, when you're speaking, you don't have the opportunity to put it on mute. Um, but that aspect is something that's important. The court in my trial, if you weren't talking, you had it on mute. That, that was sort of the, the rules that were there. Um, and I think that's important aspect of it. So in my case, what I think is important is Judge Tingree set out certain rules and the rules were set forth to tell us, okay, a week before we all got on and practiced, you know, could you deal with it? And that included the witnesses. The witnesses were also involved in the, tri in the trial prep and every attorney had to make sure that their witness signed a statement saying where they were going to be when they were going to be a witness in the trial who was going to be in the room with them, um, how did they get the documents. So every witness, you would say what documents they had. And the beauty in one aspect of the system was, during the course of the trial, if a witness said, hey, I don't have Exhibit 75, it was emailed to them. The court actually had the physical files, and there were two witnesses that were physically in the courtroom. So when we were cross-examining those witnesses, they actually had the physical, they had a stack of the exhibits in front of them. The court had them as well. And so you were able to do it. When we had to cross-examine, most of the, as I said, all the exhibits were pretty much in there, but any additional exhibits, you had to provide them the day before the trial, whatever. If there were additional exhibits that were going to be in there to contradict, to do whatever you want to do that hadn't been agreed upon, the court had said, I want you to submit them to everybody in advance, and then the court would determine whether or not they were going to be involved. The other thing that we talked about is the witness testimony, and, and, and that's been a concern about are the witnesses being coached? And, you know, that's the ethics that we all have, uh, but certainly that becomes an issue here. In our, my particular trial, the witness was actually out of California, um, one of the witnesses. So, so we had seven lawyers. Uh, from states that were, so Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, um, and Massachusetts, and the witnesses were in Wisconsin, California, Rhode Island, and I want to say probably Connecticut. So, you know, that goes back to the cost factor. Nobody had to fly in. They were there. Um, that made it easy, but everybody had their different platforms of how they were in there, and so the witness in California, um, you know, you talk, Katie talked about the background, so he he had moved from when the when we were doing the trial prep, he was walking around with his cell phone. During the trial, he was actually at a desk in his office, but he had all these fancy things behind it. And I agree with you. I think it sort of put off the judge a little bit because <clears throat> he came across as arrogant as he can be. And Dan said, you know, the concern about sometimes you don't have that face-to-face. -face. Well, let me tell you, this guy came across the wrong way face-to-face -face for all the wrong reasons to the point the attorney who had been practicing for 35 years said this was the worst witness he'd ever had. And he's the one who called him. And he was so arrogant, it came through the Zoom. It was clearly there. Um, you know, so from that aspect, it just, you know, we went two days. We didn't know what it was going to be. But the benefits, you know, one of the things we're talking about going into different chat rooms. Well, the advantage is for us. So I'm sitting at my desk looking at a notebook computer. I've got my desktop and I have my phone. And when we were communicating as far as the other attorneys who weren't, you know, doing the cross-examination, we were actually emailing each other or texting each other during the course of the trial to talk about things. So from that aspect, I actually thought that was some benefit to it. The same thing with my clients sending me questions. Oh, you got to ask this or do that. Things that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to do in a courtroom, 
you did get that advantage. Um, so I think that, that's a positive step. Can I interrupt here? Because there's a question from the listener right on what you're saying. Uh, one of the uh, members of the audience, how did you handle all, to, this is to all of you, how do you handle being able to speak to or communicate with your client during the trial or hearing in real time? Well, for me, um, the way we were doing it, we actually did text. I texted with my client uh, during the course, but obviously that's when I wasn't, you know, cross-examining any of the witnesses. Um, you know, one of the attorneys who I'd said who was, you know, was a, there were, there were six defendants. I represent one of the defendants. So one of the other co-counsel, one of the defendants, he, he said to me that he was not, um, uh, he was not looking at anything that we were saying. And, you know, from the text, because he was so occupied, he had his notes. But what he loved about it, in terms of being able to conduct the trial, was that he had everything in front of him. And it was he felt it was easier for him to go through his list of questions, because it was easier as he was sitting at his own desk. Um, and, and by the way, he was the one guy who was dressed like I am now, with no coat and tie, which, you know, everybody else dressed in a coat and tie. So I, I think that was actually one of those interesting aspects of how we all dealt with it so our um in our trial the judge specified that witnesses um had to be in the room alone and it had to be you had to see their full body in the screen and were not permitted to use any other devices while they were testifying um so there was no active communication um, between the attorney and a witness while they were testifying. When they weren't testifying, then they could email and um, text and that kind of thing. Um, and, and between the attorneys, we could email and text and that kind of thing as well. Um, and there was a procedure in place for talking to opposing counsel if it was necessary. Um, you know, everything had, all these processes were prearranged and written out in the procedural order. Um, so I actually looked at the Windstream Holdings order that the Southern District entered in the Windstream case on the hearing. And, and he had a whole series of limitations imposed on witnesses in terms of what the witnesses could or couldn't have, what they uh, were able to do. It's unclear to me whether a text link would have been permitted because he says in his order, witnesses testifying via Zoom shall utilize the Zoom link only during the time they are testifying. So uh, I think they're actually probably appropriately as a limitation. I, and I do think when you're testifying, a witness should not have any additional um, access or or um, links to any third parties at all. I agree. I think, you know, the issue as someone raised the question, you know, what is the concern about the other party talking to their uh, witness while you were asking? And, and clearly, I mean, that gets on to our own ethical obligations as lawyers, what we're doing. Um, in my particular case, the, the primary, we'll say the plaintiff, the plaintiff was actually in the courtroom. So the debtor and one of their, so, you know, the communication that could have been going on while they were on the stand, that wasn't possible. Obviously, that's the way it was. Uh, the other witnesses, it was pretty clear how you could see where they were um, and the way their camera was focused, it was, it, it was there. But um, clearly, you know, if somebody was communicating to them on the side, we wouldn't know. There wasn't a way to know. I mean, the court did require them to sign an affidavit saying, that, you know, who was going to be in the room with them and what the documents were. Uh, but, you know, that gets back into the own ethical aspect of what they were doing. That was the way it was. Um, you know, I guess one of the aspects, what I've heard from some people say, what if you put a camera in front and behind uh, the witness? You know, some mechanism or some way where you can establish who the, where the witness is. Uh, but th these are the things that we did sort of to deal with it. Um, it just, you could sort of tell that the person was either by themselves, where they were, they were in their office, you know, looking at the documents, looking at the computer screen. I mean, that's the one thing you, you sometimes, you know, the witness would be looking straight at you. Next thing you know, the witness head turns because they were looking at the documents. Um, and the one thing that we had in the trial that was of interest is that, so whoever was talking similar like Zoom, um, the camera would always go directly to them. And so the witness would talk, go back and forth. And one time, one of the attorneys, when he was asking questions, he went black. So you could hear him, but you no longer saw him. 
and then he came back. And I think that goes back to the bandwidth. You know, what you have in your office and what you have at home, two different things. And, and that's just the way that we had to deal with it. Um, you know, um, we had one question about what do you do subpoena a non-party witness to the trial? Well, the bottom line in my case was that um, all those witnesses were in fact, had to be part of the Zoom basis. And we had to tell them a week in advance that that's how they were, you know, they all had to participate. That's the way it was going to be done. You know, if you have a, a non-cooperating witness, I mean, you get the same thing you'd have in, in you know, if they didn't show up in person, I guess. Um, but, you know, to me, that goes back to what happens if you have somebody who doesn't have the technology. One of the discussions we had was, do you bring the witness into your office and put them in another room and set them up that way? Um, you may not be there, but maybe they're there. Um, and that's, you know, some different aspect of trying to deal with it. You know, put them in a place where you know that they, you have some type of control over it. I mean, I think, I do think if I took anything out is make sure that the back where you're testifying or where you're, looks like an office and doesn't look like, um, you know, uh, cats flowing around or whatever Katie said in that aspect. Cause you're right. That's what you're going to remember. You're not going to remember the name of that attorney, but you'll remember what her background looked like. One thing to add on that front about um, depositions, cause it sounds like a lot of uh, the witness issues are dealt with by the court in the trial. Um, for depositions, I think you want to be very mindful of these limitations of Zoom and other platforms. And you want to, you know, work out with the other attorney stipulations, like these similar rules, nobody else in the room, stuff like that. Um, I think you also want to be mindful of what you can't see. You know, I have documents in front of me right now, but you can't see that right now. Um, so I've, I've seen and read articles, I've never had an issue with it, where um, witnesses have been told to you know, stay away from their computer, or have space. Um, that way, you know, there's nothing in front of them. And if they are communicating on the screen, there's no way they can read it. Um, and then there's one other note for depositions for Zoom or any other platform, whoever sets that up, you can ask them to disable certain features. So if you are worried about the chat feature, have them disable it, and then you know, it's just not an option. So for depositions, I think you kind of have to take some of these issues into your own hands make a record. If you think something is going on, you know, point it out just like you would in any other deposition. Um, but yeah, you really got to take them into your own hands. Whereas it sounds like with the trial, the courts have really um, gotten ahead of this. So Katie and Gary, um, did the court have a colloquy, an introductory colloquy with the witnesses when they started or prior to their starting testifying saying, can, can you please confirm for me that you're alone? Can you please confirm for me that you have no no um, documents in front of you. Can you please confirm for me that you have no links other than the Zoom link or whatever link it is um, prior to or during your testimony? Because that's sort of an easy way to deal with. Yeah. So in, in my case, they um, they all had to sign the affidavit saying where they were, what was you know where their office was, who was with them, and at the time of the the trial, the judge when they got sworn in. Uh, would ask them what they had. And so they all, you know, what exhibits they had in front of them. So that was a part. Um, Dan, there was one question I wanted someone asked, how does Zoom court handle bathroom breaks? So um, the way they did it, the court basically, you know, took, it would tell us when a break was coming. He would say, okay, I'm, you know, besides a lunchroom break, he would give a break to deal with it. And that's how we did it. I mean, we started at, at approximately nine o'clock. We all had to show up, quote, quote unquote. We started, let's say at 10 o'clock, went till about 6.30, um, and did the same thing the next day. Uh, and the court gave us, told us in advance what the schedule was going to be, when the breaks were going to be, you know, how much time he expected for openings and closings and, and went through that process. And we did sometimes when there was a break in a witness, um, they would give a break at that time too, because we had to make sure that the witness, you know, was the witness there because a lot of the witnesses weren't listening to the whole trial uh, because some of them were expert witnesses. So they just came in for that particular part of it. So. Can I interject? Um, there's a couple of questions that asked about court orders specifying procedures, asking the panelists to share it, uh, in particular the Windstream one. Um, in, the, in the Windstream Holdings case, Dan was referring to uh, the fact that the judge entered a, a pretty extensive uh, pretrial order regarding how the procedures for the trial would go, and we can circulate that um, to all the panelists. And I don't know if any of you are aware of any other court order that's the only one that I know of. Um, maybe the ABA rules, Dan, or? 
So there's um, the ABA has or the AAA has um, has embraced AAA. virtual hearings quite vigorously. I would say they have a actually a very good virtual hearing guide for arbitrators and parties. It is quite detailed. It has six pages of um, an appendix, which is suggested Zoom default settings, very, very detailed. Um, and it also has a model order and procedures for a virtual hearing by a video conference, which is also quite detailed. Um, so uh, those can be made available to the participants. Um, but the AAA is, is actually sort of in the forefront of this, I think. And I can share the, the order um, from my trials there on the docket. Um, I should know those cases by heart, but I don't. Um, but I can provide the copies um, to participants after this. I, I think it was like 12 pages long on exactly how it would work. You know, I think of the procedural orders kind of like the script of a play and we talked about in the pre-trial um, conference with the judge, we talked about as many aspects of how this would work as possible and thought through them and agreed to them in advance. And then the judge thought about more and put it in the procedural order and then issued it. Um, you know, for example, for the witnesses, they were not allowed to use a screen for documents. They had physical copies of documents. So there were no other screens um, in the room that they were in other than the computer. And he had specified that the, they had to um, have their entire body in the, in the viewer. And so you could see that there were no phones and you could see that they weren't close to another screen because they were so far back that you could see what was around them. Um, and that's how, um, that's how our judge dealt with that issue with the witnesses. Um, but yes, I'm happy to, I'll send that around. And for, for my trial, there was an eight page document that was provided to us in terms of what our requirements were. Um, Katie, I just sent that to you and to Dan as well. And, and so you can figure out how to pass that through. I mean, the way it was described to me was that, you know, this was new and Judge Tangredi understood that and we were gonna sort of work it through together. Um, and the one thing I can tell people is it worked remarkably well. Um, I was certainly very apprehensive uh, when it started, the idea of going through the process, but at the end, I was amazed at how uh, easily it worked um, and uh, to the point where I think, you know, even for in Massachusetts, to the extent that we go and do it, uh, the video conference way, I mean, certainly trials may, you know, if there was a jury trial, that's a whole thing onto itself, uh, but I've already done one uh, uh, Zoom uh, status conference in front of Norfolk Superior Court. Uh, that worked well. The one, one other point I would point on that is that if, as you've all learned now, when you go through the Zoom format, it tells you what your name is. You want to make sure that you really have your real name on there because some people like to put other names on there. Um, and, you know, that's some things they may not really want to be in front of a courtroom. Uh, the other thing is you may want to know exactly the name of the judge who is also appearing because in one of mine, the judge just showed it, it didn't say judge. Um, it just, it had his first name and last name. I didn't know who he was at first. I, you know, Superior Court, you don't necessarily know all the time who the judge is going to be. And sure enough, you know, luckily he was in a black robe. So that made it easy. But at first I didn't know who he was. So I thought it was someone new appearing in the case. So. Right. Well, our last topic um, is a discussion about some of the, the new rules and statutes that are coming out um, or the old ones that are being brought up by the courts as the basis for um, how, why and how we can be litigating remotely and um, how the court may force you to do it. So, Dan, what are, what are some of the things that you've seen for that? So... Um, when I started looking at this, I was thinking of ways that what might challenge the court's exercise of its discretion on these types of orders. But I think the courts have crossed this Rubicon. So um, if you talk to judges in the federal court, they point to Rule 43A 
as giving themselves inherent power to order remote proceedings uh, with, with good cause shown. Um, and the, for example, the windstream order starts by citing to both rule 43 as having the inherent power and citing to the court's general order M543, which is their COVID order, and saying due cause has been shown. And I think in the federal courts, I, I, I participated in a bench bar with Judge Saylor, Chief Judge Saylor, and I think it's clear that the federal courts are going to use their power under Rule 43 to order a lot of what we do in the ordinary course virtually. And that includes hearings, clearly. Um, and it is going to include jury wave trials. I think jury trials are, are a different issue. I, as Judge Saylor says, that he's, they're still trying to figure out how to conduct a jury trial and how you would go through voir dire and how you would schedule bathroom breaks and when you, know, when you would have to schedule cleaning if people were in the courtroom. He, all of that is open, but, but the concept of virtual trials is here. And I, I, I was looking at the difference between the Massachusetts Rule 43A and the federal Rule 43A and wondering if it was a, a valid objection based on the difference in the language. But the fact of the matter is that the SJC has already crossed this Rubicon and the most recent COVID order says civil bench trials may be conducted virtually in the discretion of the trial judge. So we're going to have it. Uh, the triple A is frank in saying arbitrators have the power under Rule 24 and Rule 32. The, the advice that the triple A is giving to arbitrators is simple. It's just document the good cause shown why you intend to have it on a virtual basis, but they are proceeding just that way. And the same is true in the First Circuit and in the Federal Circuit. So, so I, I don't think we're going to see any significant challenges to jury waived cases. Um, and I think the question of how a jury trial is going to be conducted is so up in the air at this point in time that I, I just don't, I think that's act two. I just don't think the courts are ready to wrestle with that, but at some point they're going to have to. So I think we are going to wrap up this um, section with some tips from each of us. Kate, do we have time to just briefly run through? I know uh, we're... Yes, I mean, it's 11.59, but I, I think people would want to hear tips and we can certainly run over a little bit if people are willing to, to hang in there and to listen to what the panelists say. So go, I think, I think go for it. Okay, great. Um, so I'll give you some of the tips uh, for depositions. Um, I think you've probably heard this uh, as a theme for, for all of us, but I think you should definitely start doing remote depositions before you're ordered to. Um, like Dan was just saying, with trials, uh, courts basically, uh, we think they'll, they'll get to the point where they're ordering trials to be remote. remote. Um, depositions are essentially already there. Um, in Massachusetts, there's a specific rule regarding remote depositions. Um, so start taking them before you're ordered to do it. Um, and along that, my second tip would be practice. Um, I've done a, a handful of these, maybe 10, and I can tell you that from the first deposition that I was involved in to the last, um, it has gotten significantly smoother. Um, and it just makes all the difference if you and everybody involved is familiar with the platform and knows how to use all the features that are available. Um, and then my third tip was actually already discussed a little bit, but just beware of the limitations in terms of the witnesses, what they can see, what they can't. Um, make a record if you think something's going on. Um, and then just finally to address, I think somebody asked for a question about exhibit platforms. So I'm just going to answer that briefly. Um, I know of a few. Um, O'Brien and Levine is a local 
um, company um, who I've used and they are very good. They have an exhibit platform. And then as does, um, I think it's Lexitas has one as well as one more Lexitas and um, Veritex. Veritex, yes, thank you. Um, so those are a couple uh, that you can use and I'm sure there's more. Um, so I would say know your platform's technical limitations in terms of how you can manipulate documents. Um, be flexible in terms of how you are planning with opposing counsel. Make it a joint planning process. Don't make it an individual planning process. Um, I think there's nothing more frustrating than when one attorney has technical issues that you could have avoided that holds everything up. So, and Saylor was actually quite insistent on this piece. Uh, he said, everything's going to take 50 to 100% longer, and you have to be patient. You have to try. Um, and the third tip is have two screens. Have a screen for the for the witnesses and have a screen for your documents. It makes things in immensely easier. So I'll give a couple tips from some of the other uh, attorneys who are involved in the case. One of the things that if you if you are going to be using your cell phone as your platform, get a stand. Put it on a stand to make it easier for you to deal with it. That was a simple one. Uh, two, consider whether the headphones is really what you want to do. Um, three, remember you are in a courtroom. And that goes to what your attire is, what you say, and how you deal with it. Um, uh, you know, whether the TV is on in the back room, uh, whether the dogs are barking, those are all things to deal with. I will tell you that I think we're all going to deal with it, so there's some flexibility about it. I think the courts are going to, for lack of a better term, I think they're going to laugh a little bit when the dog's barking. Um, the baby's crying, um, so we're all going to deal with it. But I think we we all have to adjust because, as we've said, the day this is coming, this is here now, and um, I just don't know when we're going to go back. I mean, we talked in our presentation beforehand about jury trials. Uh, I guess if it's a criminal trial, I don't know how they're going to do it. I, I just can't envision how they're going to do it, and at some point they're going to have to, and that's going to have an impact upon all of us who do civil as to when we ever will get a jury trial. I'll do my three tips. Um, one of them is a pre-tip, which is you can always tell when somebody's on an iPad because they turn it sideways to see more people, but the camera is on the edge. And so the camera is filming the side of their face because they're looking at the screen. So if you do have an iPad, just beware <laughs> that, that everybody can tell. Um, so the first tip is to give yourself some more time because um, things that we've all been used to doing and ways that we've all been used to doing them is not how any of this works. And making sure that the process runs smoothly is now your job. So making sure that your clients are comfortable and ready to participate, that they have all the tools that they need, that um, you've thought through a process with opposing counsel and with the court, and that the third parties that are participating um, are prepared and ready to go, including check the background of your expert so that he doesn't make you lose your case because he comes across as arrogant. <laughs> and make sure there's no cats behind you. You know, all of that is now our jobs. Um, and so leave yourself some more time for that. For trials, um, work hard to have a really good and thorough procedural order to make that part easier, right? Work with the court to make sure that the judge has had a say and has thought through all those issues as much as possible and told you what you want, so you don't, what he wants or she wants, so that you don't have to keep stopping the proceeding um, to decide these things along the way. You've thought through the issues, the court says what they want, everybody knows how to handle a situation when it comes up um, during the trial. And the third thing is to go a little bit slower during your trial than you normally would. Um, so that you have the opportunity to clean up the record if you need to um, in ways that you might not have if you were in person, right? Um, things are going to get said and you're not going to have the opportunity to object in the same way. You're going to take a minute to object and clean up the record, clean up the record at the end, stipulate in advance as much as possible. Um, so those are my tips.
Good. Sorry, I was on mute. Thank you. I want to thank Katie, Andrea, Gary, and Dan. That's a lot of information to pack into an hour. I think it's fair to say that everybody's a little bit nervous about jumping off this cliff. Um, it seems very scary. And uh, I think having your practical tips, uh, we can boil it down to preparation is going to really be key to making it uh, to making litigation remotely successful. So I really thank you for your insights on all of this. I think it's been very helpful. Thanks for all of the, uh, the tips, especially at the end. And I think we're probably gonna to have to do this again because I think we're gonna be seeing more of this as we go along and all, all of you will be more experienced probably in a few months. So thanks again and thanks to the BBA. I did wanna mention just a couple of BBA programs that are coming up next month. They're not on the calendar yet. So I just ask to be on the lookout for them if you're interested in, in them. Um, there's a COVID standing committee for the bankruptcy section of the BBA and we are coordinating uh, volu the Volunteer Lawyers Project training in basic bankruptcy. So there's going to be some training programs throughout the year. You'll, if you take one, you'll be paired with a mentor if you're new to bankruptcy and you want to learn about bankruptcy and, and they'll also ask you to, to uh, take on a pro bono case as they come up. And there's also going to be a program in July about succession planning. If you, if you get ill as an attorney, or if you're stuck with COVID on very little notice, um, there's a, a plan that the BBO recommends. A couple of uh, attorneys with the BBA, Jacob Simon and Frank Morrissey are working with the BBO uh, to put together a program on how to effectively plan for the event that you're disabled suddenly so your clients can be taken care of. And those are two events that are coming up in July. So just keep an eye, our eye out on the calendar for those. And again, I want to thank our panelists. This was terrific. I learned a lot and I hope you enjoyed yourselves. So thanks to the BBA. Thank you. Bye. Take care.